Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, Episode 3, the one about GDPR being good for business, lockdown shopping, and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Let's get on with the show. And welcome back to this brand new video and audio series, Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We're here to keep you up to date with the latest tech, news, reviews, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. As ever, I'm joined by my co-host, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple. He's the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast and the host of the Rod's Vlog video series. I give you Mr. Roger Edwards. Ah, hello everybody and thank you Pascal as always for that fabulous introduction. I really do like spending some time with you because you are also a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing and of course you're the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast and many other video series as well. Let me give you Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much. And a big thank you to our audience. If you're joining us live or on replay, your support, as ever, is appreciated. We've got lots to go through. And importantly, we've got quite a biggie in our film marketing segment. But before we get to that, we'll be talking to you about some of our content spotlights. We'll talk about This Week in History. We'll give some of our local creators a bit of a shout out and so much more. But to begin with, as ever, let's go with In the News. Pascal, this is the most fun piece of marketing news I've seen for ages. Marketers are being challenged to recreate their favourite adverts to raise money for the Marketing Academy Foundation. 20 very famous mar marketers, people who write articles for magazines like Marketing Week, have already pledged to recreate an iconic ad in, in, in support of this charity. That is so much fun. Sadly, I need to follow up with a bit of somber news from the UK's Competition and Markets Authority. They are asking for tougher rules and regulations to challenge the dominance of Facebook and Google in the online marketing and advertising space. They really want to make sure that other tech platforms get a chance to play. TikTok is the highest new entry in Brand Z's 2020 Top 100 Most Valuable Global Brands, ranking and entering at number 79, with a brand value of, get this, $16.9 billion. And this is ahead of the likes of Uber, Adidas and Pepsi. Hmm. The Stop Hate for Profit campaign, Roger, officially begins. You remember it was beheaded by the cancellation of online advertising campaigns by hundreds of brands and independents. CNET, the web, the, the web media company, turns 25. So happy birthday, CNET. I'm wishing you many, many years of reviews, blogs, podcasts and videos about the world of consumer electronics. Wow. Well, McDonald's UK Chief Marketing Officer is leaving the business, prompting a reshuffle of the marketing team, probably to be able to leap forward following the pandemic. WhatsApp, the Facebook-owned messaging service, just announced five new features, including a QR code, new contacts, a dark mode, and video calls with up to eight people. Didn't somebody once say that QR codes kill cats? I'm going to finish on the good news, Roger. Google introduces free listings on Google shopping pages and Facebook launched three Facebook shops to help independent retailers. It began in the US. We hope to see it very soon in the UK. That was some very interesting news. A bit of uh, you know, good news, a bit of um, more you know, kind of uh, down news. I'm shocked by CNET, 25 years, that's almost, almost as long as the internet has been around. I know, I know. It's, it's, it's incredible. I don't know where time goes. You know, things that I thought were relatively recent things, I look, at, look them up and, and they're 20 years old, 25 years old in this case. I, uh. I was very taken by, to begin with, the Marketing Academy Foundation. I'd forgotten mm. about them, I must confess. Mm. Thank you for the news. Their work, as you know, is to help people from a challenging background to start a successful career in marketing. And you and I have had the pleasure and continue to enjoy our career in marketing. And I'm, I'm assuming this challenge of recreating your favorite adverts is literally from home using, using what you've got around you. So that kind of lockdown restrictions. So DIY advertising, publishing it on YouTube to entertain you know, others. So let me ask you, if you were to take part, which advert would you love to recreate using just what is around you? Goodness me, Pascal, that is so hard. I mean, 
like you, I tend to gravitate towards the more cinematic ads, you know. So immediately in my head, I'd, I'd, I'd think of the Guinness advert with the horses coming out of the sea or all sorts of car adverts with cars charging across the desert on straight roads. But I guess if you were in your home, it would have to be using things to hand, wouldn't it? So I, I guess it would be the Shake and Vac advert from the, from the <laughs> 1970s and 80s. You know, it's all you have to do. You do the Shake and Vac and put the freshness back. Do the Shake and Vac and put the... You see, I've already recreated it. So there's £1,000 to charity straight away. Is that evidence that this advert has worked, if you can remember it so well after all these years? Because that's one of the challenges, isn't it? Sometimes adverts are, are forgettable immediately. So you need, you need, you need a, a, a very bad song that is so catchy. Do, do you know, I, I watched recently uh, Demolition Man again. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And you may remember there's a, a, a scene where the uh, the three main characters of primarily um, Sylvester Stallone and Sandra Bullock are in the car and they are listening to the radio that is replaying essentially um, adverts from you know the 80s and 90s and they're all busy singing away the green green giant and that kind of things and Stallone's characters say put me back in a freezer is, is uh, you know kind of very very funny. I was thinking about this one for me Using what's from the house, I'm, I might actually try recreating, you know, that advert, it was a car manufacturer that had created this almost like a domino style effects of different parts of the car moving, yes, knocking each other, and then eventually revealing the car because of, of the panning of, of the camera. I'm going to say it was a Honda advert, but I can't be sure. I think it was Honda. Could have been Honda Accord or something like that. Probably. Mm. And that would be probably um, the first time I would use my toolbox in quite some time, but you know, uh -huh. it would be fun. If I can't do that, not the one that I would love to do just because it would be immense fun is uh, any of the Haribo adverts, you know, one with the, with the oh, adults yes. talking with the children's <laughs> voice. So you get the whole family involved. And then you can uh, stuff your face you, um, eating sweets, but your kids then can do the voiceover. I think that that would be very fun. It's just reminded me of another one, actually, Pascal. So I'm going to say this. Um, one of my favourite adverts in the past was Smash, you know, the, the instant mashed potato. And it, and it had those funny <laughs> sort of Martian robots in it going, you well smash them all two bits. But the thing was, I remember watching a programme about how famous advertising strap lines and jingles were invented and you know you said that shake and vac was a dreadful song and that's why i've remembered it well smash's strap line was for mash get smash and they hired a composer to come up with a, a musical jingle to accompany that line and he went into the meeting allegedly this is how it happened and he took a look at this line for mash get smash and he says do you know what it'll probably be something like and he got his piano out and he went for mash get smash and then they went away and spent about three or four months coming up with all sorts of different variations and different uh, orchestrations and guitars and pianos and classical and after three months they went back to that thing that it took him literally about 10 seconds to think of straight in his head for mash get smash so sometimes simple is best mm. <laughs> nice for you to bring that simplicity message into what we do so listen let's throw things down a little and move on to our content spotlight segment yep So, Roger, for our content spotlights, what have you found this week? Well, Pascal, I'm going to have to preface this by apologising because I'm actually going to introduce for what a lot of people think is actually quite a dry topic. And it's actually a topic which drove a lot of people absolutely insane a couple of years ago. I'm going to talk about GDPR. <laughs> GDPR. Now, this is an article about... The lessons that we've learnt from GDPR over the last two years. Now, of course, GDPR was introduced in May 2018. It was a fairly sizable tightening of data privacy laws. And, and I can remember at the time, and I'm sure you do as well, Pascal, it, it almost became a cottage industry, didn't it? There were people popping up all over the place, writing courses for how to implement GDPR. And, you know, people were having to send out emails to get people to reapply for their email lists. Some companies became so paranoid about it that they even 
dumped their entire email lists. And and a lot of people were saying this is just far too complicated for businesses and it's it's an it's far too intrude it's far too complicated, etc. etc. But Interestingly enough, this article, and, and, and this article's on the eConsultancy.com website, is actually looking now at the effects two years on. And despite all those initial concerns that marketers might have had, what GDPR has done, it seems, is actually increase massively email engagement. So Deliverability rates are up 67%, open rates up 74%, click-through rates up 75%. So I guess that even though it was awkward and, and for some people quite complicated, actually going through that exercise effectively of thinning out your email list and, and, and effectively dumping anybody who didn't want to be on it has actually made email lists a lot more productive and presumably the people who are still on those email lists are a lot more engaged so i thought that was actually quite interesting given given the pain that we seem to go through during that uh, that run-up to gdpr two years ago what do you think i like it a lot and no need to apologize my dear friend because well you know i'm a big fan of email marketing i always felt that that was one i know it's the kind of granddaddy of online marketing it doesn't get the spotlight as much as maybe social media video even seo but the numbers don't lie i mean some of the, those that you've you read out but also what we've known and interestingly what you have shared with me i've heard it's um, said by some of my clients some of the people that we you and i know where ultimately they're getting higher engagement greater conversions so in fact where you know on occasion conversion was rather modest at the risk of actually being penalized by some of those email marketing platforms then are getting you know greater success but also i can only imagine that if you are the um, email marketer the content creator you're going to get such a boost in confidence in your own abilities because, mm. again, you're getting this barometer saying to you, you are doing a great job and this is going the right direction. And from memory, and I, again, you're right, it was really quite chaotic. And it reminded me a bit, you know, how actually have this joke because we're old enough to remember the, um, you know, Y2K. Yes, uh, it was. Kind of uh, nonsense because it was nonsense. I remember vividly some of uh, the companies that I, I was aware of had some of their IT uh, kind of team members, IT department team members, literally sleeping at the office mm. that New Year's Eve in case, in case of what? I mean, I think common sense dictated that nothing much would happen at all. Um, I remember vividly, as work, I was working back then in corporates, and we were getting quite strong letters from our own clients and sometimes others saying, we demand that you explain what you have put in place for Y2K. And it was just <laughs> kind of the most surreal uh, moment. But so with regard to GDPR, I saw it uh, as, um, as, as benefit. Um, I think it transpired that that was the case. And those who were worried, I think that those who were fooled in thinking that the greater your, you know, the, 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 the bank of email addresses you have, the more likely you are to be successful. But what, that's what I call wishful marketing or wasteful marketing, mm. which is that you have maybe 20,000 um, email addresses in, in, in your kind of database, but your conversion rate is 5%. If you have that and your conversion rate then becomes 40%, if not more, then, you know, all, all the better. So no, no apologies needed, uh, my dear Roger. I think it was a great find. Yeah, and it's again, it's interesting and, and the law of unintended consequences. I've noticed recently, um, of course, here in the United Kingdom, we're slowly easing ourselves out of lockdown. And I think down down south in England, where you live, Pascal, from tomorrow, um, you're going to be able to go to the pub. And now in Scotland, we can only go to a pub with an outside garden. But in England, you can go to the pub. And this week, my inbox has been full of emails from pubs saying, we're back, we're opening. And I'm actually thinking, I don't ever remember subscribing to your email list. So <laughs> how does GPR, GDPR affect you? And the other thing, the other thing is... Obviously, if, you, if you're if you using a web browser on a PC and you visit websites frequently, then you'll have already done the privacy, yes, I accept cookies. But if you click through to a website from something like Twitter, where you're effectively anonymous, we do get that incessant, incessant 
pop-up do you agree to this do you agree to that you know and and i must admit i would love there to be one sort of all-embracing gdpr button that says yes i consent to cookies across the board because sometimes they just it's almost oh for goodness sake yes 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 it's like going uh, to choose your favorite coffee i mean yes. I mean, you drink more coffee than i do roger but yeah. um as someone that doesn't go and won't be going for a while because of uh, the current pandemic, the, the the choice of coffee is quite overwhelming. And I think it's the same. Sometimes I go on the news website and I've got to essentially choose to deselect all the different vendors and partners and so on. So it can take me, okay, I'll be maybe five, 10 seconds before I can consume the information. But actually in a, in a time where we want speed and efficiency, um, that's kind of, uh, it will affect your, your willingness to spend time with that brand, which yeah. gives me a bit of a segue for my selection for this content spotlight segment, Roger. So okay. again, we don't talk to each other. We want to surprise each other. And I also went for a service talk research paper. Ah, great minds. <laughs> Let me give you the context. I was uh, prepping for, I was hosting a panel discussion on the impact of the pandemic to the world of B2C. So we're doing some research, uh, like everybody else, and I came across a survey done by Deloitte and YouGov PLC. And they, were, they asked just over 2,000 people about whether the pandemic had impacted the behavior, their behavior, as buyers, purchasers, consumers, whichever term you prefer. And I've got two stats that I'd like, three in fact, I'd like to share with you and get your reaction because I think it plays to what I just mentioned a moment ago, which is willingness, the goodwill of your customers. So mm -hmm. the first one, the headline one, is three in five consumers have used more local stores and services during pandemic. That's number one. Number two, one in five has stopped using a business due to their response to COVID-19. In particular, how they have refused to prioritize their staff and failure to ensure their safety. Third, 62% say they will be more likely to spend money at a business who takes extra step, steps sorry, to ensure the safety and well-being of their employees. And those last two, to me, place to the work that I do with my customers, which is around reputation management whereby you use the internet to present yourself fully and show different qualities, of course, you have as a business and as a brand. But I would argue with you, Roger, that this concern that a customer might have about the very employees of a business, be it small or you know, large brand, is newer. It was probably still, it was very much there, I would argue. But I certainly take the view that if I now hear or walk somewhere and I can detect that employees are not being kept safe by their employers, that will have an impact on my willingness to um, become be their customer and trade with them. What say you? Yeah, do you know, this is, I mean, this is a massive topic, isn't it? And in the early days of lockdown, you know, there was, there was quite a few fairly sizable, well-known UK brands, probably global brands, that just didn't seem to be doing the right thing by their customers and by their, their their employees, as you've said, and 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 there was quite a there's quite a back backlash against these brands in the media, um, and all sorts of uh, people saying, you know, when when everything goes back to normal, people should remember this, and people should make sure that these brands you know don't get away with it, and and then as and of course as the lockdown's gone on, we've seen some, in my opinion, quite horrendous behaviour from some companies making their you know almost like sacking their employees and then making them reapply for their for the same jobs but on different contracts with more punitive terms and and lower salaries and and you just think that this just isn't right you just do not treat people like that and i'm absolutely with you i think that uh, you've got to take notice of these things you know companies should look after their employees and and I, I guess across the entire experience we've had with COVID there are all sorts of things that I would like the world to learn from you know there's also the environmental impact as well you know less travel less flying less cars on the road so the environmental impact has been great for the for the atmosphere and, and global warming I guess but how long do these memories last in people's heads? And we, I you just said, I just said before, the pubs are opening tomorrow. And one of those brands that was um, was mentioned earlier on that didn't particularly treat its employees very well. A lot of people would say, "I'm never going to have a drink in that pub again." 
But I suspect that when the pubs open tomorrow, Pascal, there'll be quite a lot of people who maybe even said that will be going to that those pubs. So I absolutely agree with you. And I think that we should support brands that look after their employees and, and maybe think twice about those that don't. But in the grim reality of the new normal, is that what's going to be the majority response? I'm not sure. This this survey suggests that it is, but how long will that actually last as things get back to normal and people's quite short memories fade away? Now, I think that's a very fair point. What I read into this as well, and that's back to my earlier comment about um, reputation management, is if you are a responsible employer, and by the way, you've been well before pandemic, that's, I think that's an important point, but if you've been a responsible uh, employer, and I've taken actually for granted the way in which you look after your employees, maybe there is a chance to showcase those practices, mm. which obviously with elegance and panache, not making it too much about um, West expression on that, that kind of virtue signaling and everything that comes with some time, the way in which people promote themselves online. But I think for me, um, employees have to be careful. There are platforms like Glassdoor.co.uk and many others where someone could, and all they can do is go on social and say, this is the way I'm being treated. I was very concerned, Roger, locally, where I live in the northeast of England, where it took a very long time for some of the shopkeepers and staff working in the local stores to get the PPE. Mm. It was obviously a national debacle, including the NHS and so on. But it got to the point where I spoke to the staff. I mean, we kept in our distance, said, do you want me to contact your original manager here? Because we've been on lockdown for several weeks and you're still waiting for your mask or you're still waiting for that, you know, kind of perplexed, um, perspex, the um, shield and so on. They got that in the end, but it's left me with the poor impression of that brand. Uh, and I think maybe to your point is it would be down to personal experience. So if you've not seen or witnessed the lack of and of course, on the opposite side, positively, you've seen the presence of good, good, you know, employee care. Then maybe yes, indeed, it'd just be a headline that would be lost in the noise of print media and online media. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a promotional opportunity to tell the world how you treat your staff. And let's face it, most companies will promote their products and promote their customer service. But if you can promote the fact that you're also a great employer, then you're going to have a lot of people who want to buy your products, but you might even have a lot of people who might want to work for you as well. And that's got to be a good thing. Superb final point, Roger. Thank you very much. Now, let's move on to our next segment. Can't wait. Marketing tech and apps. So, Roger, marketing, tech, and apps. As you know, every week we pick two apps or solutions that um, essentially take our fancy or something that we want to explore further. What have you got for us? Okay. Now, as you know, Pascal, I've been dabbling with YouTube videos over the last three or four years. Um, you always say this in the introduction. Thank you for that. I do something called Rog Vlog, which is basically behind the scenes of my business. So sometimes I might be showing a video of me going to a conference and speaking. It might Sometimes it might just be a train journey or a plane journey. And as you can expect, those Rog Vlogs have been a little thin on the ground since lockdown. Uh, but like any platform out there at the moment, there is always this bit of black magic going on in the background, which is called the algorithm. And YouTube is, is just like any other platform like Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. You've got to know what the algorithm expects. And, and YouTube is effectively a massive bank of videos. But in reality, YouTube is a search engine. And a lot of people, when they go looking for videos, will type in questions like, where's the best place to visit in Edinburgh? Or... What's the best coffee in Newcastle or something like that? And, and they'll be, they will get results and those results will be in the form of videos. So it's very, very important when you're putting a YouTube video together that you target specific keywords and you put those keywords in your, in your title of your video, but you also include them within the description of the video and you also include them within the tags section of the video. Now, this can be extremely hard to actually get right uh, because if you come up with a keyword that millions of people are searching for then the chances of your video rising to the top are absolutely nil. TubeBuddy is this 
platform that I discovered probably about six months ago, which helps you research those keywords. And then it ranks them in terms of the number of people searching for it and the um the amount, the amount of time, uh, the times people are searching for it, and it gives it a score out of a hundred, and it allows you to effectively create titles which will make your video rise to the top of search, and it will also give you a list of tags that you can include within your video again to make it rise to the top. Now, since I've been using TubeBuddy, I have to say that. My num the number of subscribers to my YouTube channel has increased, the number of views to my videos has increased. And I can even go back and say that's when I started using TubeBuddy and those videos after I started using TubeBuddy have actually had more views and more engagement. And that's probably as a result of the fact that I'm now targeting keywords better. So really, really like that. TubeBuddy has been a revelation for me. It's also got a, a, a mobile app version as well. So if you're on the move and you have an idea for a video, you can just type it in and it'll come up with the keywords for you and give you uh, suggested titles and that even the suggested titles can give you ideas as to the sort of videos you can put together so if you're a youtuber and you're looking to increase your views and your subscriptions check out tube buddy highly recommended now the second piece of tech this is actually on my pc now i do quite a lot of writing pascal um I've uh, I'm actually close to sending my book off to be proofread that's a great that's a great big milestone we can probably talk about that in a future episode but I do write quite a lot of articles for financial services trade press and I've played around with a few of these um you know um correct correction apps like Grammarly and and even the built-in correction in Word for Windows, I find them a little bit clunky. Um, I'm not so so much worried about spelling. It's more the it's more actually the the construction of sentences. You know me. I like to keep things simple. And one of my biggest bugbears throughout my entire marketing career has been people using passive language in a, in marketing material in, and in articles and in booklets and brochures and web copy. And this app it's called Hemingway editor Hemingway after the author Hemingway and it, it you just paste your text into Hemingway editor and it highlights adverbs it highlights adjectives it highlights passive sentences active sentences and again it scores them and color codes them so you can instantly see if you're overly passive if you're overly active if you're overly using adverbs and adjectives and it just allows you to just quickly go through and chop out all that padding as it were leaving you with crisp clear easy to read copy so Hemingway editor fabulous and not as complicated as some of the correction software out there these are great choices thank you so much Roger um I've heard of both of them, but I must confess, I don't use them anywhere near as I should. So thank you very much for bringing them to the um, you know, marketing tech and app segment. So my two are in fact, two apps that I've used in the past, then somehow forgot about as sometimes it can happen. And mm. I find myself reconnecting with them because of projects I'm working on. They are both, which will perhaps surprise you, audio production and editing related. I know I'm saying this because I would always favor video as the, the format and media, but I want to reintroduce you to anchor.fm. Hmm. Anchor as in the item you're going to find on the boat.fm because it's audio. Now, anchor.fm, you and I, with our Ashley good friend Richard Tubb, discovered it pretty much as it was launched many, many years ago. And it began live as, you know, the kind of um, ways to get into podcasting app, easy to use, and so on and so forth. Fast forward a few years, during which time I'd lost track of it, it's now actually been purchased by Spotify. It is a Spotify company, but it remains independent. And it offers pretty much everything you'd want from a production uh, kind of solution. You can record on Anchor.fm. You can edit, slice and dice. You can even add some of their copyright-free stings and music. You can invite people to join you on an Anchor.fm call. So long as they have the apps, you can record literally uh, phone calls for your podcasting, which is something that others don't do. 
it will distribute it to all the major platforms for people who listen to podcast and so on and so forth and there's both an, a mobile phone app and a, a desktop stroke laptop version Interestingly, which is unusual, I found the laptop version to be better and easier to use than the mobile app, which uh, is unusual because usually it's the other way around. But what I like about Anchor.fm is that it began humbly to say, if you want to get started in, with podcasting, we are the go-to um, platform and you may choose to migrate away from us once you've kind of earned your stripes well I think now it is a platform that people could use for many years to come it's mm. not just for the beginners it seems to have kind of calmed his um, his niche into the um, kind of uh, entertainment sports hobby type of um, realm it doesn't seem to have a great deal of contributors from the business world they do have some but not nowhere near as uh, other platforms but I think also what I like about the um, the team behind Anchor.fm, they're approachable. You can tell that on Twitter, they, rep they reply to tweets, you know, praises and criticism. They are uh, themselves, obviously, audio producers. And when I heard that they'd been purchased by Spotify, at first, Roger, I was concerned. Thing, here we go again. A big brand comes along and spoils it for everyone. And I would say so far, so good. Quite the opposite. In fact, what I think uh, Anchor.fm has gained is the higher distribution as Spotify is really making good inroads into the world of podcasting. So I'm going to go back because I've been working on a separate project, not work-related. Actually, you know about it. It's my Confound Stories mm. series where I've been interviewing people from around the world about the positive side of lockdown and confinement. I've got now 10 episodes. I'm going to pressure test Anchor.fm and I'm going to publish them as audio only and see where that takes me. So that's my first one and I'm excited because it's one of those where I discovered it and forgot and it's back on my radar. Still with audio, well, I'm going to mention Audacity, only because I think we should. Yeah. It's um, the number one platform of choice for recording audio. There are many others out there. It's, it's so powerful and yet it is still free for users around the world. And we are using Audacity as part of the production of Two Geeks and Marketing Podcast. And each time I play with it, each time I use it, I discover a new feature. I discover something that it can do. And I'm just blown away. So I know that for viewers and listeners, you will not be new to Audacity. But what I would encourage you to do is go beyond what you're doing right now. Be curious and explore all the features because you might be, or you will be pleasantly surprised. So there you are, Roger. For me today, it's all about audio production, Anchor.fm and Audacity. Fantastic. Let's move on now very quickly to one of the segments that is immense fun for you and I, which is This Week in History. So, Roger, I'm going to take you back to 1623, where a French philosopher and scientist called Pascal Blaise invented the very first calculator. And this week in 1886, Carl Benz, who later founded Mercedes-Benz, officially unveiled the Benz patent motor wagon, the first purpose-built automobile in the world. On the 27th of June 1929, Roger, the first public demonstration of a colour TV by Bell's Laboratories takes place in New York City. Wow, 75 years ago, 28th of June 1955, the laying of the first transatlantic telephone cable began, and it took them 15 months to complete it. On the 27th of June 1972, Atari, the iconic video games company, is founded and pretty much gives birth to the industry we know today. 26th of June 1974, the product barcode is invented. And guess what? The first item to be scanned was a 10-pack of Juicy Fruit gum. This is going to take you back, Roger. 41 years ago, on the 1st of July 1979, the first Sony Walkman and its iconic headphones goes on sale in Japan. A year later, it was released in the US. And July 1985, the world falls in love with a brand new car, the DeLorean, as the movie Back to the Future is released in cinemas. Oh, Pascal, Back to the Future, can I just tell you a story about Back to the Future? I want you to tell me a story about Back oh, to the Future. 
not only is this one of my favourite films of all time, I mean, every single line, every single scene in this film is crafted to perfection. And I just love watching some of those little things going on in the background. You know, the fact that all those clocks in the first scene are all synchronised at the same time. It's just a fabulous film. But going back, 1985, I was at university. I was at university and I went to the cinema to see this film with my girlfriend of the time now can you remember at the end of the film when um michael j fox goes back to the future and and he knows that in the future doc brown is going to get shot by terrorists and he's written doc brown a letter but doc brown's torn up the letter and he's thinking what can i do what can i do and of course he's sat in a time machine so of course he, he sets the dial so that he arrives back a few minutes earlier so that he can warn the doc about the terrorists so everybody in the cinema you know, hundreds of people in the cinema on the edge of their seat. He goes back to the future. They do all that jiggery-pokery with the um, lightning bolt. He goes back to the future. He arrives, and he's in the car, and the terrorist van comes round the corner, and me, in the in the cinema, Mr. Excited Edwards, points to the screen and goes, It's them! At the top of my voice. And I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to do it, but everybody in the cinema pissed themselves laughing because I shouted that out it was so embarrassing but I was just caught up in the excitement of that film and even today I can watch that film and discover new things one of the best films ever one I mean I think you're right the crafting of the story the pace the humor the wit the um, I mean it's one that you you watch sometime the DVD with the extras on where there's little mm. vignettes of information and you kind of go, oh my God, you know, that kind of thing. So I can't wait. But since we are um, actually confessing to each other, mm-hmm. uh, I need to admit to something, Roger. Okay. Pascal Blaise, you may notice a uh, similarity with uh, his first name and mine. Spelt the same, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when I was at um, college, university, I lied to my friends and told them that Pascal Blaise was, was my ancestor. <laughs> so so what happened was I discovered that there was such thing as ancestors. You know when you grow up and you discover that your parents were children once as well and you yes. kind of realise that there's more to the world than just you. So I remember going to the local library in Bordeaux um, in the southwest of France and literally looked for someone famous with my name on. And I came across Pascal Blaise. He's known for um, maths, in particular, the Pascal's triangle and physics and so on. Interestingly, this calculator, which blows my mind, 1623, the first calculator, it was so powerful and inventive that at the time, King Louis XIV um, given almost like a copyright mm-hmm. uh, right, uh, right to create more. But to begin with, his first client was the treasury. So he worked for the king to make sure that the treasurers were not cheating the king of any any kind of wealth and money. So I went around for a year telling people, oh yeah, I'm the descendant of Pascal Blaise. Uh, <laughs> that was quite amusing. And I'm thinking now, if I was a teenager in 2020, I wonder whether I would go as far as saying that Pedro Pascal from Mandalorian was my cousin or something. <laughs> you know, the kind of things that, that you do when you're much, much younger. So there we are. That's my confession as well. Uh, I think yours is far more, far, far funnier though. So Roger, this is now our creator's shout out moment. You and I every week look at maybe two individuals from our community who have been crafting content over time, building an audience you know, with their fair hands. I want to begin with Pete Everett. Now, Pete is the host of the Marketing Development Podcast and recently managed to produce his 100th episode. Now, you are a podcaster too. You know how much effort goes into the pre-production, production and post-production. Number 100 is quite something. And I want to just kind of say hi to Pete and, and congratulate him. He's been working very hard to help people build their own agency. His podcast explore marketing, um, operations, business models and so on, and I think he's doing a fantastic job. My second creator this week is a lady called Aileen Smith. Now, Aileen Smith is the um, kind of owner of a business called The Health Heroine, and she wrote an article recently, and the title says it all, Is Your Personal Health on Your Business Plan? 
and she's a champion like you and, and now she's on a mission to make sure that people look after themselves she would argue that you are the business your health your energy will translate over to your services to your creativity and so on and so forth so again Ellen Smith thank you very much for all your hard work over the years to keep us right making sure that our personal health is on our business plan what have you got for us this week Roger Okay, so I'm going to give a shout out to a lady called Alison Edgar. Now, Alison might be known to some of you listening to the podcast. She's mainly known in the UK as a sales trainer. Um, she's written books on selling, and she's one of these people that tries to uh, teach selling skills in a non-icky way. You know, sometimes the, the, the process of selling just makes people feel a little bit that there's something wrong with it, and they feel a bit uncomfortable selling. She does a great job of just making selling a good, engaging, two-way communication process. So it's actually quite interesting that the piece of content that she's put out this week isn't actually about selling, but it caught my eye nonetheless. Now, obviously, we're going through a crisis at the moment with COVID-19, and even though we're coming out of lockdown, there's quite a lot of concern about people maybe losing their jobs or being made redundant or taking a pay cut, whatever it is. And she's written an article, and it's called Employment is Like Musical Chairs. And and it's just a really good article about what to do if you find yourself in difficult circumstances at the moment. It's practical, you know, it acknowledges the fact that it's a difficult time, but it gives you some good practical steps to get through it. And, and I just like the approach, so definitely worth checking out. And my second is a, a lady in America called Madeline Sklar. Now, I can't honestly say that she's probably in my direct community, but she runs a Twitter chat every week, Pascal. And for those of you who don't know what a Twitter chat is, basically you use a specific hashtag, and in this case it's Twitter Smarter, hashtag Twitter Smarter, and you talk about a topic, and it could it's usually a marketing topic, um, how to get more views on your website or how to improve your email marketing. And everybody who's included within that Twitter chat uses that particular hashtag and this lady has done this Twitter chat every Wednesday night for about the last four or five years now Twitter chats come and go Pascal you know some people launch them do very successfully for a few months and then just give up move on to something else but Madeline has kept at it and her Twitter chats are really good fun very fast paced it you know you have to be quite nimble to keep up with it because <laughs> there are hundreds of tweets going down and you've got to maybe work a system as to how you can keep up with it but if you want to engage with new people on a topic that you really enjoy then I would check out Twitter Smarter by Madeline Sklar Superb selection this week, actually, Roger. Yeah. So again, to our four content creators uh, we've chosen at uh, this moment in time, well done to all of you. Keep up the good work. And who knows, one day we may have you even as a guest on the Two Geeks and a Marketing podcast. Time is against us, Roger, and we need to move on swiftly to film marketing. Right, Roger. So this week for film marketing, we've got a biggie. We've got the biggest of the biggies, probably. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Pascal. Now, last week we talked about James Bond, and I revealed that me and my wife had watched all 25 James Bond movies um, over lockdown. Uh, it's not going to be a surprise to you at all if I reveal that we have also watched all three of the Lord of the Rings films over lockdown. And just because we had the time, we actually watched the extended versions of each of the films. And I think the extended versions are almost an hour longer than the cinematic release. So each of the three films, probably about uh, four hours long. Now, it's, I mean, it, it, we, there's, there's not enough time to describe how good these films are in terms of production, special effects, acting, you know, post-production absolutely impeccable impeccable we're here to talk about the marketing but what one thing that i didn't know until i read and watched some of the extras is that peter jackson the director 
of these films had actually envisaged those extended versions as the as his ultimate goal now a lot of videos get met a lot of films get made and they have scenes that get deleted and most of the time they get deleted because actually they don't advance the plot or they're just padding or it affects the pacing of the film and and the the fact that they get deleted is a good thing but peter jackson didn't delete these scenes because he felt that they were lacking. He did. He, he, he intended them to be there. But obviously, a four-hour film in a cinema is probably a little bit too much for most people. So his original intention was to create those effectively definitive works and then edit down the cinematic version. But his intention was always that the DVD Blu-ray releases should be those four-hour epics. And, and I just think that the foresight... And the planning that went into the intention of doing that, rather than just, oh, let's delete that and and have it as an extra on a DVD as a deleted scene. He meant the film to be made in that way. It's it's just incredible. It's just incredible. No, you're right. The guy is such an inspiration. And of course, you know, uh, working with Philippa and Fran, you know, were the three that um, led on to that. I mean, Denise and I have a routine where every Christmas holidays we watch Lord of the Rings, the th- trilogy, special edition. I don't think there's, a, there's another version worth watching at <laughs> all. And, and you're right, the, the extras are just, um, I don't think it's been ever met as a standard. And I think that comes to, you're right, to the foresight. So in the context of film marketing, as a reminder, Roger, these films were released, uh, Fellowship of the Ring 2001, The Two Towers 2002, and Return of the King 2003. And the reason why I bring back those dates is because the internet was a very, very different place, a virtual place, than it is today. I mean, think about it. In Google only appeared 1998. The world back then was looking at Alta Vista and Yahoo for the news, and so on and so forth. So I played a bit of a game. I kind of went back into my memory bank um, because I was such a fan, and still am, of Lord of the Rings. I would argue that I got close to the same kind of... Um, fandom level as Star Wars. I was I would collect everything. I would mm. cut newspaper snippets because it was still important. I would listen and watch what was on TV and radio and so on. But back then, Peter Jackson, again a visionary, but also I think at heart still an independent filmmaker. And mm. I think that's that has a bearing in some of what we're going to discuss in a moment. Published, recorded and published is on video diaries. So if you may remember vaguely, back then, 20 years ago, you could, not YouTube, because YouTube appeared in 2006, so you can watch on YouTube uh, the, the replays, but through platforms like Yahoo, Dailymotion, but also it's an official website, you had video diaries of the production. Now, mm. in 2000, or 1999, when it, they began with the work and so on, that was just unheard of. And you could argue Peter Jackson began his own version of vlogging, which is now taken as, uh, for granted. Mm. There was empty supplements in major newspapers and, and magazines. I had boxes of them. Fortunately, I had to let go of them as we downsized and moved in elsewhere. But I remember, you know, even the Financial Times, even Sunday Times, had massive supplements by the Lord of the Rings, weaving in the film, the, the books, you know, the history, and so on and so forth. You could go on the official website, lordoftherings.net, sadly no longer managed uh, as it used to, but you could download videos, audio files, you had an interactive map, of Middle Earth, you could download merchandise, book, and so on and so forth. So there was just a lot going on, uh, I would say, f- formally within the, the marketing machine. But there's also things that they did with the fans, Roger. Mm. I know, and I was one of those people who used to love buying something like the Sunday Times, and I used to sit on the floor and read the paper. And I don't know whether it was Sunday Times or, or which, but there, there was a great big map of middle earth that you could unfold and it was right there on the floor and i think my cat came and sat in the middle of it and stopped me from actually looking where mordor was but that we don't get that sort of thing in the digital world anymore and and that's why it's so good to talk about these things it's nostalgia but but you're right you know he worked directly with the early versions of of fan sites, you know, Tolkien fan sites and content portals, which, which I guess you could argue were the early of earliest versions of influencer marketing, weren't they? You know, working with Tolkien fans, fantastic. Um, he flew over Harry Knowles from Ain't It Cool News and other bloggers 
to visit the set in New Zealand. Um, and that was a big deal in those days, flying people halfway across the world to to attend the filming of a film. Um, study materials were on offer to schools to allow teachers. You know, I remember when I was in primary school, The Hobbit was one of, was on our reading list. And then as we moved into secondary school, Lord of the Rings was on the reading list. Can you imagine the interaction that those kids got by having those study materials given to them by the filmmaker? Just, just incredible. And it's those little genius pieces of marketing that, you know, really, really tip the balance here. And I think You'll probably um, you'll probably confirm this, but they were actually focusing on three different audiences, weren't they, Pascal? Yeah. So when actually you you read about the history of the marketing of Lord of the Rings, which is incredible that you can do that. Twenty years ago, the these individuals from Peter Jackson, Fran and Philippa, but also the people behind Warner Brothers and New Line Cinema, the distributors, were kind of again behaving like indie filmmakers that is to say if we have no budget we have to go through networks so mm. i love you know the fact that you reminded us about the tolkien fine sites now before in 2020 what you had were forums you may remember vaguely they were ugly looking things you know which <laughs> yes. all text-based you had to really uh, be keen to spend time there they were not the beautiful kind of blogs and and social media platforms you have now but they were doing social media marketing. They were using social networks to market uh, their, their business. They allowed those fine sites to create their own kind of news. Say, well, here's the photography, here's the video clips and so on. Do um, with it as you will, which is, uh, again, not practiced nowadays because people are not in spirit independent filmmakers, which, as you know, I would argue, is uh, the kind of behavior and habits you should have as an mm -hmm. independent content marketer. But you're right, for with regard to the um, the three audiences, when you look at the interviews with the um, the marketers, work, people working for the production and distribution companies, the first one was, understandably, the most, the very fervent fan base. Yeah. And there was two reasons why they actually targeting them, not just to get the message out, but also they knew that if they didn't have that fan base on their side, bear in mind the many changes to the storyline, and some of the characters had to go, some of the characters were present longer than in, in the books and so on, so they had to kind of moderate the um, enthusiasm that can sometimes backfire. So I think to have them on their side was a good tactic in general, but also a, a wonderful um, marketing ploy. So that was the first one, but I know that there was another two, Roger. Yeah, the second, we're looking at older moviegoers. <laughs> now, the article that we, we source this from Classes older moviegoers as people in their thirties and above, which I'm I'm thinking is a little bit young, really, isn't it? But uh, older moviegoers who may have read the books, like again at school, and it's a great way of drawing those people back in because you're tapping into a, a childhood memory, aren't you? Oh, I haven't thought of Lord of the Rings for many, many years. I'll go, I'll go to the cinema to see it. Wow! And then you go get the books back out and dust them down give them another read so again you know it's one of the one of the first things you do as a marketer is to segment your audience and target your messages to those segments and here he's done three audiences all of which collectively together boosted the audience to this film so that was the second audience tell us about the third well the third audience then was um, those who only experienced all the rings through the book Mm. A book that was released, obviously, um, in the 50s, I'm going to say, but I could be wrong. Uh, I should have checked before um, talking to you, but I'm pretty sure that that was when certainly was, it was crafted. Mm -hmm. And what you have is literally then, I'm going to call them the grandparents and parents who only know all of the rings through the books. They've not really spent that much time through the um, in cinemas, but they would pass on their, their passion and of course, you know, they would extol the virtues of the storyline, the characters and so on, and take their, their kind of grandchildren and children, you know, to the cinema, sometimes for them also a brand new experience. And and I think back to what you were saying earlier, which is it's not, not only did they have control over the assets, they crafted all the assets, but they were happy to let go of control in terms of, uh, we've done the creation, now over to you, the fans, and more to do you know, as you will with those. 
But then they took the trouble to segment and therefore tailor and change the tone and style. Mm -hmm. In fact, if I still had the box of all the different supplements and, and cuttings from back in the days, I could say to you that they all look and sounded very different because, again, I think some of the editors were able to, to make changes to adapt to, to the audience. Mm -hmm. And I think as an example, again, of joining the dots and combining tactics and strategy. I think the marketing of the Lord of the Rings trilogy is wonderful. And also I think it's very helpful to go back to the idea of this 20 years ago, the internet was very, very different. Yes. And, and I think I wonder whether uh, as we are approaching the well, 20 years anniversary will be next year for the Fellowship of the Ring, are they gonna do something about it? But what will they do and will their approach be influenced by you know, the way in which the, the internet landscape is today compared to what it was 20 years ago? So are we going to have an official website again or are they going to fall to, well, let's put it on Facebook. Are we going to have unique video clips and audio clips you've never seen before 20 years later with preface by Peter Jackson or is it going to be more absent? I think it's very interesting. It, it wouldn't surprise me if he, he didn't even plan this <laughs> and that he has actually got an even longer version that he planned all the right right back from the start but he's been holding it back for the 20th anniversary you just never know do you you just never know pascal i've got to ask this and there's loads of them but who's your favorite character in lord, the lord of the rings trilogy i've got to go for aragorn mm -hmm. i think uh because of his the story arc and the, mm -hmm. the, the character evolution and so on um, but I think, uh, as you know, there was a different actor altogether that began shooting and then realized that it wasn't quite right. So Viggo Mortensen was invited uh, last and he arrived when things were already in full swing, bless him. And he, as you know from the extras, the very first scene he had to, to film was a, a fight against the orcs. <laughs> yeah. Literally days into arriving into New Zealand. He'd not read the book. He read bits of it on, on the aircraft so he didn't feel too stupid when he arrived on set. And as uh, the story goes, stuff of legend, he was his children who said, please, Dad, you've got to be in all of the rings because he was really unsure to be uh, in a fantasy movie. I mean, there was little for people to, to kind of understand about whether or not this would be a success. I mean, yeah. the early attempt back when, um, which was a semi kind of animation stroke film capture, which I think technology-wise was very ambitious, but I think they, they were out of steam and energy and, and budget. So mm. you only had, I think, you know, the first book almost in the early version in film. Mm. But I think Lord of the Rings, I would imagine that one of the reasons also perhaps Peter Jackson went ahead with the um, video diaries and with the, you know, the um, official website and so on, maybe it was to pacify the financiers and also to secure perhaps more support from production companies and distributors because again this was huge huge gamble mm. this could have failed miserably mm. my favorite character pascal is Gollum, or as he originally was <laughs> was smeagol um and even when i'm sitting here telling you this i'm i'm surprised that i'm admitting to you that my favorite character in the film trilogy is something which was actually pretty much entirely CGI. Um, now I know that they they took the actor uh, Andy Circus, I think he was called, and and they used his voice obviously, and they used the, his face as an as a way of getting the expressions into that CGI character. But the the actual character itself that we saw on the screen was entirely animated using computer graphics, and and it's such an amazing performance. I mean, such a tortured soul, and and there's the two sides of his character constantly talking to each other, and the way that they did the different camera angles when it was good Gollum, if that's possible, sort of not so bad Gollum and bad Gollum, and 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 it it, it was such an amazing performance. It just sucks you in, and every time I watch this film i get sucked in to the immense character and i have to I have to almost pinch myself and say roger this character isn't real it's actually completely generated by computer graphics but such was the performance and such was the cleverness of the animators that it, it just seems to be real and, and just to come back to what you said 20 years ago and they were doing things as amazing as that i i i just it, it always amazes me when I see Gollum. 
I think it's a fantastic choice, Roger. And I think you're back to this idea of a tragic character. This is what I think has worked well. I know from the extras again that this comes as a surprise to the producers and filmmakers that the audience actually really, really loved Gollum and Smeagol uh, to the point where actually, if I'm not mistaken, in Return of the King, the um, lead-in segment, which is something that we will always look forward to, because if you remember, Roger, those films were released in December in the UK, so it was like the yearly event. In fact, at the end of um, Return of the King, I looked at Denise and I, I will say I had a few tears in my eyes. And I said to her, what are we going to do next year? Because for the last three years, this has been the thing that we look forward to. But certainly in terms of uh, you know the presence or the screen time of Smeagol Strogolum, this has been something that was added later because of the favorable reaction to, to, to the character. And I think that has made the film. Because I think without that, you don't have the same tension with um, Frodo and so on. So do you know... Um, we need to be careful that this doesn't become this sort special edition as the two geeks and a marketing podcast. But I think when it comes to film marketing, 20 years ago, Peter Jackson, supported by obviously his vast team, including you know Fran and Philippa, have have taught us some very important lessons. And it's back to this idea of that independent filmmaker's spirit, being a little crafty, resourceful, but using connections to get your message out there. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Phenomenal marketing for some phenomenal films. Okay, let's bring today's recording then to a close. To you, our viewers and listeners, thank you so much for your support. Feel free to subscribe and add your suggestions for future recordings in the usual places. He was Roger Edwards. I was Pascal Fintoni. Until next time, go out there, make amazing content. And if you're going to do marketing, do it right. Mm -hmm.